to forget Jesus you tell me who I am who great to see everyone back here today. What a great reminder. Is that not a message we need to be reminded of every single day as we wake up, wake up just to be reminded that we are loved completely and we are known completely and he knows exactly how your day is going to be that day and we trust in him. But we want to welcome you here to the service. If you are visiting with us, we say this every week, please stop by our guest table as you leave and we have some uh, guest bags out there that have information on the church and we also have a guest card you can fill out there or you can fill out the care card that's in your bulletin. Please fill that out and drop that in the offering plate that is at the table as you leave today. Uh, we would love to have a record of your visit to know who you are and reach out to you just to see how we can serve you better. Uh, but right now we're going to ask everyone to stand. And as you stand, look at your neighbor. And I want you to tell them welcome and tell them that they are loved. And if it's your family, put your arms around them and show them you love them. 
Let's prepare our hearts for worship.
special prayer request this morning to member Sharon McKee. She's always in the, the lobby giving out you to you kids uh, something to color and to work on. She's in the hospital at Fry. Uh, so I want you to pray for Sharon. And also I want you to pray for Rusty as he's there. Uh, we have a, a special time in prayer, prayer this morning. I'm going to ask Trent if he'll come up. And he's going to share about South Asia. And then he's going to have our prayer time for us. So Trent, make him feel welcome, would you? Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good to see y'all. And I'm pretty sure I'm on Facebook, too, which is cool. But um, anyways, I want to give you a quick little blurb about what I'm doing, and then we'll approach God in prayer. Um, so I am moving to South Asia, a mega city there. Um, and to put that in perspective, I'm moving to a city where it's about the size of Chicago, um, but with the population size, if you were to take all the people in Chicago, the people from New York City, the people from Los Angeles, and s squish them into that city, and then sprinkle a few more million people in that place. So I'm going where there's a lot of people who are far from God, and that is kind of the, the reason I'm going. Um, because so many people will be will be born, will live and die and never have a chance to hear the name or message of Jesus. And I just want to say thank you guys because whether you know it or not, you have supported me to go uh, through Southern Baptists across the country, through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. That financial giving has allowed me to step into this calling from the Lord. And so I'm thankful for churches like you guys who've not only faithfully raised me up from when I was a, a little little boy, but have poured your money and your time into me. And so keep giving because the gospel is urgent, it's good news, and it needs to go out. And so I want to pray, but before I do that, um, I would love to talk more to you, more details about what I'm doing. So feel free to come get me after the service. And in the back on the really shiny glass table, there's a... Um, a page that you can sign your email, your name, and if you're on Facebook, I'd love to add you to a prayer group. And so a lot of you guys have already done that, but if you haven't, make sure to do that. So yeah, I'll go ahead and pray for us, and thanks again. So Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can come and worship you. We thank you that through the blood of Jesus, we have access to meet with you. And I just pray that this service would be glorifying to you today. And we thank you that you saved us, that you've called us. And I just ask that we would be a people who pray eagerly for the people who've never heard the good news. And I thank you for this church. I ask that you'd bless them and continue to pour out your great love here. And we do pray for Sharon and Rusty McKee. God, I pray that you would just raise her up and bring full healing and full restoration to her body. Um, and we just praise you, God, for all you want to do today. And we, we ask that you would... Continue to guide us every day, every step we take. And so we thank you so much, Jesus, and we pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. Life may not be easy, and everything that I know. 
need you've already given me. I remember how you told me I can trust you completely. So why am I doubting when you proved that you'd fight for me? You've walked me through fire of my redemption Lord how could I question when you proved that you'd die for me you walked me through fire your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. That should be one of the easiest passages to find in some time. If you look at the beginning of Scripture, we're going to look at a very, very, very familiar passage that I'm sure we all heard, especially if you grew up in church. You probably heard this every year 
multiple times. And even if you didn't grow up in church, it's just a part of our culture, this story of Adam and Eve. It's a story that's not just a part of the Christian faith. If you travel around the world and you look at traditions, it's, it's funny how that beginning story has modifications, but there is that reference to a beginning with a man and a woman and a fall. And I really don't even like to call it a story because it is kind of believed in some circles, in a lot of the worldly circles, it is just a story like you would have Hansel and Gretel or Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You have the story of Adam and Eve in the beginning. But what I want us to look at today is really we need to understand this is a historical event that did take place in the beginning. And it was catastrophic. What happened in Genesis 3 impacts every single one of us and every single aspect of life today. And that event was simply the temptation and the fall of Eve and the fall of Adam. I want you to listen to what John MacArthur said. This is a kind of a long quote, but listen to this because every single thing that you struggle with is probably found in this. Concerning the fall, says, This is by far the saddest event in history, obviously. All problems, personal and environmental, all that is wrong, evil, immoral, incomplete, all that is decaying, all that is inferior, all in failure, all disappointment, all weakness, all sadness, all sorrow, all pain, all disillusionment, all trouble, all discomfort, all remorse, all regret, conflict, hate, jealousy, envy, bitterness, vengeance, all fear, crime, selfishness, confusion, all lies, deception and error, intimidation, all manipulation, deviation, distortion, everything that fails to be as perfect as God is came from Genesis chapter 3 in this one event. This then is monu a monumental event. It truly defines our universe and it is the reason for all the imperfections and death. But here's what I want you to understand. We're gonna, it's kind of a little bit of a, a long introduction, but I hope this helps maybe some of you. Because chapter 3 is essential for you understanding the rest of this. If you miss Genesis chapter 3, the rest of this makes no sense whatsoever. Because this comes because of Genesis chapter 3. For some of you that struggle with understanding scripture, I want to give you just a basic little outline, okay? You look at your Bible, and you may have to flip back. It's probably just one page in your, in your Bible. You have Genesis 1 and 2 is what? Creation. Genesis chapter 3, which is on this same page, you have fall. And here, the rest of Scripture, the message is redemption and restoration. All this, God's message, God's unfolding revelation, has a purpose of getting us back to the first two chapters. A new version of that. So if you've struggled with understanding Scripture and what it's all about, understand that all the rest of Scripture ties right back in and is there because of Genesis chapter 3. Everything was very good, but then everything was cursed. And even in the midst of that one verse is a promise made that God is going to send someone to redeem us, to answer and pay the price and defeat Satan. And then Genesis chapter 4 verses to Revelation 22 Remind us of that. Real quick, Revelation 22, don't turn there, but look at what it says. The last chapter in the scriptures says this, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Where did we see that tree of life? Genesis, we see it in the original creation. It was good. And then we see the curse. And then we see all the scripture, God's unfolding plan through history, through poetry, through prophecy. We see all of it pointing us back to God stepping in to redeem you and restore you into a relationship with him. So understanding that foundation, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, but focus on the first part of those verses. So if you would stand, and let's read Genesis chapter 3 together. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the tree of fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the trees which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day. Now, we're not going to talk about this, but just a thought. Notice immediately after the choice was made God responds <laughs> he doesn't run away cut himself off but in the moment of that sin he comes walking interesting passage full of grace and then verse 9 it says this then the Lord called to Adam and said to him where are you we're not going to talk about this, but just something to add as we look at the fall. Whenever we sin, our tendency is to run and hide, isn't it? In shame, the guilt. But don't you understand that in the very beginning, from the first sin, God responded and he called out to Adam, where are you? And God calls out to us, not because he doesn't know where we're at, but he wants us to know where we're at. He wants us to know that we need to come out of hiding and come to him because he is the only one who can do anything about our sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Lord, give us understanding. And Lord, help us to understand how essential your word is, how attacked your word is. Lord, ultimately what that ultimate choice is for all of us. So Lord, speak through your word. And I pray that you would bring conviction as only you can in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're going to look at, if you want to kind of prepare for this, we're going to look at three primary parts of this passage. Number one, we're going to look at the serpent. Second thing is we're going to look at the strategy of Satan. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the seduction for Eve. And then that's going to bring us to a, an idea of this. What is the ultimate choice and decision that we must make in light of what we see in these passages? So the first thing we're going to look at is the serpent. Verse number one. It just simply says this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, I'm just going to stop right there. So a couple things I want us to note. 
First of all, this is a real event. We need to get that in our mind. This is not some story. This is not some fable, allegory, some type of poetry. This is a historic event. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul actually refers back to it as an event that took place. He said, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul understood it. This was something that was real. This was history. This was the beginning of creation, and it happened. It was a real event. Second thing about the serpent is it was a created animal that apparently was indwelt by Satan. It says he spoke. Now, first of all, it was a serpent, and we always, you see the traditional picture, don't you? You have the tree, and what is, the, what is in the fruit, uh, the tree? What kind of fruit? It's an apple, and we have no idea what that fruit was. Probably was not an apple. But we see this, and we see wrapped around the limbs a serpent, a snake. But that's traditional view, and it's here it says, This serpent spoke. Now, I don't know about you, how you feel about snakes. I know growing up, my mom, if she saw, saw a snake, everybody in Wittenberg knew there was a snake. Because you could hear her screaming as she ran into the house. And you think, well, did Eve not think something strange here? You have this serpent that's talking and I just this is just kind of reading into the text a little bit but think about this number one is the serpent wasn't the serpents we see today we see a little bit later on that God cursed the serpent to crawl along on his belly so apparently this could have been an upright creature it was a beautiful creature like much of God's creation he was just a created animal that had the ability to speak empowered by Satan Revelation 12.9 refers to him, says the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, a reference back to Eden, the serpent of old that deceives the world. But you also think about this, what had Eve experienced up to this point? It was new in creation, she was completely innocent, and you think about every single moment for her was new. The wonders of God's creation, all that he had made, and it was not tainted yet. And you think about the innocence, and here's another creature, and you wonder if she's just thinking, this is just another one of God's amazing creations. In that innocence, Satan steps in. Now, here's another thing to consider. You think that's just kind of strange, though, but does that happen in other places in Scripture? You ever see any talking animals? You know the story of Balaam and his donkey, the talking donkey? Look in Numbers 22, it says that the angel of the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it spoke <laughs> to Balaam. He actually had a conversation. I just wish, that's one of those Bible stories you like, kind of wish you could be there and say, Balaam, you realize you're talking to your donkey, you're having a conversation here. But God spoke through this donkey, supernatural thing. Look at Mark chapter 5, when Jesus confronts the man who was demon-possessed, the demons begged him not to just cast them out, but to put them into this herd of pigs. They didn't want to be unembodied, their spirit. So he sent them into these pigs. So it's not really crazy to consider this animal as speaking. It could be a miracle of supernatural things. But we see that it was indwelt by Satan. And then it says this, that he was cunning. More cunning, referring to Satan, than any beast of the field. That means he was clever. He was shrewd. He was subtle. And he was wise, extremely wise. John 8, this is us now looking at Scripture. We get to look back to see who this creature was. 
This is what it says in John 8, 44. It says, you are of the father of the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning he, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He was cunning more than any creature that there was. He was deceptive and extremely wise. Scripture also refers to him as the angel of light. He does not show himself for who he is. So we see the serpent, but what did he do? What was so enticing? Let's look at, second thing, the strategy. The strategy. It says in verse 1, he says to the woman, Has God indeed said, you, sh you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? First part of Satan's strategy and it's still true today, is that he questions God's word. Did God really, did he indeed, did he really say you shall not eat from any tree? Now, did he, did he say that? Did God say that? No. That was so far from what God had said. Satan knew that. But this deceptive question is to bring question and doubt and confusion to Eve's mind. Satan knows God's word in fact Satan knows God's word really better than us because he takes it and he manipulates it and he twists it and the deception that is in our world is a little bit of truth that we know is there but it's twisted and distorted and perverted and it lures people away so he questioned God's word because if he can get Eve to question the word of God he can get Eve to question the person of God. And it's the same for us. If we begin to question this, did God really say this? What's God's motive in this? He can get us to question who God is, not just what he said. And doubt is subtly introduced to our minds as it was to Eve. So how did Eve respond? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? I want us to look at it. I've got two passages up on the screen. You see on the left, this is what, how Eve responded. It says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the trees which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, is that what God had said to Adam? Look at what the actual word is, just the previous chapter, when God spoke to Adam. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, a couple things just to look in on this. And commentators go back and forth, but it is, it is interesting to see. It seems, number one, that there was a subtle change in what she said and what God said. She seems to be minimizing the scale of freedom that God gave them. He said, you shall eat from every tree, and you may eat freely. It's like God has said there's just one here you can't eat. But look around. Everything, you have freedom to eat of all of it. Eat freely. Get all you want. But just from this one tree you shall not eat. But what does Eve say? He says, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. She left out every and she left out freely. There's subtle, but it is there. She seems to minimize the scale of the freedom that God gave them. And then it seems that she minimizes the judgment. What did God say? You will surely die. And she says, you, 
you, lest you die. Now there's a little difference there in the language, but what God was saying is, it was emphatic, dying you will die. Dying you will die. But then she just simply says, lest you die. Will you die? Yes, but it's a little bit of a difference there. And then, seems that she added to God's command. God said, you shall not eat it, nor will you touch it. Shall you touch it, or you will die? Did God say not to touch it? We don't see that in the passage. Did God say, could God have said that? Yes, he could have told Adam that. That could have been a part of a conversation that God did not put in Scripture. But it would seem that she is now adding to God's command, making him more strict than he is. Does that ever happen in church? Churches? Where God has said so much, he's given us so much freedom, even in the way that the church is set up to function and to work. You know, I always heard growing up that we are the Bible, the buckle of the Bible belt here in Alexander County. But here's what I think sometimes as churches we can do is just like Eve, he said don't eat, but don't even touch it. It's kind of like we got the belt buckle and we know what God has said, this is how tight it should be, but we, let's just add a few more notches just in case <laughs> to make sure we don't sin. So we take the freedom God has given us and legalism subtly creeps into churches and we make God more strict and more demanding than he actually is and it really lures people away. So it seems that she adds to making him more strict. It just basically seems that she may be a little unclear of what God actually said. You can write this down. You can mark this down. This is always true. When we are unclear of what God's word says, we are vulnerable to deception. If you are unclear of God's commands and God's callings and his promises, you are exposed and you are vulnerable always to be deceived. When you're not firmly rooted in the truth, you can easily be blown back and forth by the winds of this world and of this culture. There's a reason that so many students statistically, when they graduate from high school and they go to college, statistically, majority, large majority, walk away from the faith. One professor can ask one simple question or challenge what they've believed all their life and they can chunk their faith. Because they really were not grounded. They did not know and believe God's word in the first place. And listen, he will never stop in our world with that lie. He will always and continually question God's word. Relentlessly. Agree or disagree? Satan and this lie of questioning the authority of God's word and what he has said, has it infiltrated politics the answer is yes has it infiltrated the education system absolutely just watch the news look at the curriculum that's being introduced to kindergartners it is challenging it is questioning what God originally said has it infiltrated science absolutely has it infiltrated even medicine I believe it has this lie of questioning what God has said is subtle to get us to question God so that we may question who God is. So that's the first one, that he questions God's word. Here's the second part of the strategy. He lies about God's word. Not only questions it, which is more subtle, but now it's more of an attack, a direct attack, where he lies about God's word. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What did God say? 
the exact opposite. You will surely die. And your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Lie number one. Look at these three lies. Number one is this. Satan lies, number one, that there is no judgment. You will not surely die. This message that there is no judgment gets shouted throughout our world every single day. That we can do whatever we want because God just simply wants us to be happy and there are no consequences. There is a thing called Christian Universalism and several years back there was a popular book called Love Wins. And this is the view that all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God. Hell might exist or might not exist, but if it does, it's just simply temporary and corrective. That eventually everyone's just going to go to heaven. That is a lie from Genesis chapter 3 that you will not surely die. And we live in a world who lives as if there is no consequence and there is no judgment. And they live freely every single day. There is this belief that God is just love, 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 love. Is that true? God, is God love? True. But God is too loving to allow anyone to go to hell. False. God is love, but God is also just, and that never changes. This lie has also been embraced by some denominations and churches. Another little lie that works up as far as judgment is probably we've all experienced this, whether we want to admit it or not. And that is this tendency to think, God has not done anything yet. There's not been consequences in my sin yet. And I remain in my sin far longer than I should because there's no consequence. We don't sense that. There may be a hardening of the heart. You may become callous to the sin that you may have been involved with. And it's become a habit. And no longer you sense the conviction of the Spirit. You've been hard-hearted. And you can remain in that sin because there's been no consequences. Nobody's been hurt doesn't seem like you've been hurt. And we have forgotten the law of the harvest when it comes to our own personal sin, haven't we? Do you all know what the law of the harvest is? It's three simple things. Number one is you reap what you sow. Always, if you plant tomato seeds, what's going to grow? Tomato plant. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. I plant one seed, but I get multiple seeds out of that one seed as that plant grows. So you reap more than you sow. You reap what you sow. And here's the one that we miss out on and we get deceived. You reap always later than you sow. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. But you will reap later than you sow. When I plant, hopefully if we plant some tomatoes, we plant them soon in April. We don't get tomatoes till June usually or July. It doesn't mean that the seeds are not working. What we planted is not at work. It just means that there is a delay in the harvest. Our sin whispers to us in the same way. There's no consequence. Everything looks okay, but understand every sin that you find yourself habitually involved with, if it's become in you that regular stone block, though you may not see consequences now, there is a judgment. There is consequence. Whether you see it or not, you just may reap it later. So that little lie that there is no judgment can seep into our lives and impact the decisions that we make. But never make this mistake that God's patience towards your sin is Him simply overlooking your sin. It's not that He's condoned your sin, but He is patient. Exodus 34, 6 says, 
The Lord is a God of mercy. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Praise the Lord that he is patient, but never mistake God's patience with your sin as him overlooking your sin. His desire is for you to come back and to walk in a holy and right, holiness and righteousness. But in his patience and his long-suffering, it is so that we may repent and come back. So law number one is, there is no judgment. Law number two is this, God can't be trusted. God can't be trusted. It says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And this little phrase, God knows. God knows this, Eve. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is basically, this frontal attack is not subtle. It is just basically saying, God creator is a liar. He said don't eat from it, but he knows different, Eve. God is a liar. He's holding something back from you that's good. And, God, and Satan begins to cause suspicion toward the goodness of God in this lie. And she begins to doubt his character as well. And lie number three is this, that you can be like God. For God knows that in that day your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary says this, says this lie has ruled civilization since the fall of man. It's the belief that men and women can be their own God and live for the creation and not the creator and not suffer any consequences. It is the lie that we can know good and evil for ourselves. In other words, you and I have the power to rule our own lives. We get to do what we want to do. We get to determine, like God did, as authority, what's right for us and what's wrong for us. This idea that we may be like God, knowing good and evil, is not just informational. It is about authority in your own life. It is about the freedom that you want to be in and live in. Everybody wants to do what they want to do. Who are you to tell me how to live? You ever heard somebody say that <laughs> or see that on television? Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? That is this lie that we can be like God and we can determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Whatever desires we want, we should be able to fulfill. This lie, when I was a kid and uh, mom and dad would be at work and it was just me and my older sister, back when you could safely stay at home by yourselves, but guess who was the authority in our home when mom and dad wasn't home? It wasn't me because I was little brother. It was my older sister, Angie. And as the authority in place of my mom and dad, she had responsibility too to watch me, but also to make sure our chores got done. And I, I'm sure probably there's more than one occasion this phrase was always in my mind when it was my time to do my chores and I wasn't doing my chores I wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was probably watching cartoons in the afternoon, listening to my radio, or play with something. Angie would say, you need to do this, fold the clothes. That was always mine. Fold the clothes. And I can remember, and I think we've joked about this before, here's the phrase, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> Any of you have an older sibling? You're like, you're not, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. But listen, that's the same thing we do. Satan lies to this world, lies to us that we can be God. We can do what we want to do. You're not the boss of me. The church is not the boss of me. This is not the boss of me. God's given me complete freedom and I can do what I want to do. In this fallen world, this life, Satan is rampant. When there is no belief in God, man becomes God. 
the center of his universe. And we get to determine right and wrong for ourselves, whatever we think it is. This lies at work in our culture, redefining right and wrong, is it not? Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Why would they do that? Because they think they're God. They can do what they want to do. They can decide right and wrong, good and evil, just like the lie in the garden. One commentator says this, says, Today, homosexuality is called an alternative lifestyle. Fornication is called a trial marriage. Murder is called preventing an unwanted pregnancy. And those who oppose such are said to be unloving, insecure, and self-righteous bigots. That is a world who has decided we determine what's right and wrong. God does not tell us what is right and wrong. And that little allure, that temptation, that lie to Eve got to her. She questioned, she doubted, she questioned even God's character that he might be holding something back from her. And he knows it. So Satan's strategy is clear. He attacks God's word and what he says. He lies about his word and who he is. And those lies have not changed to this day. This whole world that we live in has been influenced by that. Even more so since the garden, it has increased and increased and increased. This idea, this doctrine, these lies is in every aspect of our life. So since all that has infected our world, it leads us to the last thing. And that is, in light of those lies, now that she has doubted, now that she's questioned, now that she is unsure comes the seduction. Let's look at the next verse, the seduction. It says, Genesis 3, 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. There was the seduction and the temptation, and there was a choice to make. How could something so good, look at all that, it was appealing to the eyes, Good for food would make you wise like God. How could something so good be bad? 1 John 2.16 says, Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father but from the world. Those are the same three temptations Eve faced, the same seduction. It's the same thing you and I face. Everything in this world Satan has designed to appeal to you in these senses. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And probably is even greater today even than for Eve, what she faced. There is a lie that what this world offers promises something that will give you greater joy, greater pleasure, greater satisfaction than what God offers by obeying him. Daily, it appeals to the lust of the eyes, what you see what you feel, what you desire, how it will satisfy you. If you're on social media in any platform, let's just use Facebook for example, because we're on Facebook, you all have a feed, right? And you just kind of scroll and scroll. Is it just the things that you're wanting to find? No, you scroll and you're looking for your friends, what they're doing, but then all of a sudden something else pops up. All of a sudden, it appeals, you see it, and the headline may appeal to what you want to find out about. And you, it, the temptation is, I'm going to click on this. A more extreme example is if you're online and something pops up, 
and it allures to the lust of the flesh. And your attempt is like, well, I'll click on that, nobody will know. That is an epidemic in the church. Pornography is an epidemic that we don't talk about in the church, and it is destroying individuals and homes and marriages. But it all appeals to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They are designed to lure us away, and Satan knows exactly what he's doing. But here's the thing we need to understand. Every temptation that you face brings us to a point of belief and trust. Every single temptation that you're faced with brings you to this crisis of belief, this point of what do I believe and what do I trust and who do I trust. The ultimate decision that you and I must make is this. Do I trust God? Do I trust His Word and what He says? Do I really believe that what God says is best, that living righteously has greater reward than giving in to this temporary pleasure at this time? Do I really believe that obeying God is more fulfilling than that sin that is tempting me? At the root of all of our sin as children of God is unbelief. Every sin at the heart of it is unbelief. I've heard somebody say this. It says, the degree to which you're tempted by sin is directly related to the degree to which you do or do not trust God. Okay? Let me illustrate that. Now, I want you just to imagine, as a crowd, you have not eaten in three days. Will you be hungry? You'll be starving. <laughs> You've not eaten in three days, and in that reality, I show up with a little piece of food. Let me just roll this out here. Anybody know what that is? Lauren, I know you know what this is. This is a dozen donuts from Donut Life, okay? Y'all haven't eaten in three days, okay? Now, I, I looked, you look at the box. It's funny. It says, yum. <laughs> That's appealing to some of y'all. What's it say on the front? You deserve a donut. I mean, you're hungry. You deserve this. You've worked hard. You're starving, okay? I bring these donuts out. I even, you can look at them. I mean, I mean, we got Bavarian cream. We've got maple bacon we've got some cinnamon rolls we got toasted coat i mean let me just come down here matt <laughs> i mean it looks good right I mean, tell me how how's it smell <laughs> smells like donut smells like good smells like yum that's what it smells like so you're starving you have a need. You have desire within you, a fleshly desire. You know that this could be satisfying to you, that this could meet a need. But here's the only thing I want to tell you. I want you to know that as these were baked, it was filled with rat poison. If you eat one of these, it is 100% fatal. Okay? Everybody following me? Okay? You know, they'll probably still taste good, too, because rat poison must taste pretty good for rats to eat it, right? So that's the reality. You're starving. You're hungry. You have need. You have something put before you that potentially could meet that need. So what is the only question in the room that has to be answered as we think about this? 
Here's the temptation. Here's the reality. Eat it. There's rat poison in it. You will die. What is the only question in the room as to whether or not you eat these? What? Do you believe me? The only question, it's not about how strong your will is, how deep your need is, how much you crave this, what you really think. The only question in the room as to whether or not any of you eat this is do you believe what I told you? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you believe me? Do you know that I care about you, that I would not lie to you? Would I withhold anything good from you? Don't you understand? Do you know that I would protect you? Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Now listen, if you trust me on a scale of 1 to 10, if you're trusting me as a 10, what is the amount of temptation you have toward this? Zero. This does not even appeal to you if you believe what I told you. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it smells like, you believe me, you know that if you eat this, you will die. This has zero power over you. You can gladly walk by this and never be tempted to give in because you believe what I told you. However, if your belief and trust in me is about a two, <laughs> for some reason your history with me has not been trustworthy, if your belief in me is about a two, guess what your temptation is to eat these? Even though I told you it's full of poison, it's about an eight. There's a chance you may eat this because there is question in your mind about whether or not you can believe and trust me. Listen, you're, the temptation that you face, we believe this lie. Oh, it's just too strong. I'm just too weak. I can't do this. I can't do that. It's, it's more than I can handle is a lie. Temptation always brings us to a point of belief. Do you believe what God has said? Do you trust him? Knowing that if I give in, there's consequences. But understanding if I don't, if I believe God and I refrain and I walk away from whatever it is that's appealing to these senses in me that I know is sinful, do I really believe obeying brings greater blessing than whatever that temptation is? That is the crisis that so many of us fail at. We get to that point and whatever reason, we don't believe it, we've forgotten what he said, or we just... We don't trust him. If you dig past all the layers of whatever sin that you find yourself regularly struggling with, it is a question of belief. As we close, I just want to encourage you to search your heart about this. Temptation's real, right? I mean, we all, we all struggle. All of us struggle. Everybody struggles different. But listen, no matter what your struggle is, the question is, do you know what God has said and do you trust him? Do you really believe that the promise of righteousness and obedience, the promise and the satisfaction and the reward far outweighs whatever temporary promises that sin can make to you? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we close. And being completely honest, just say, Lord, search my heart. Help me to see what I struggle with, where I'm struggling. Some of you, you know exactly what it is right now. 
How are you being tempted? What is luring you away? And what lie have you believed? I want to encourage you, just ask the Lord to help you know his word, to remind you of what he said, the promises that he has for you in obedience. And just ask the Lord to help you to know his word, to have a desire for his word, that you'd be reminded of his goodness, that in those moments when you're tempted, that you can believe him and trust his promises completely and that his way is best. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word because, Lord, in it we find the answer to all of our issues. And, Lord, we all struggle in different ways. Lord, help us to remember no matter what it is that tempts us, you are better. Whatever tempts us to lure us away is a lie. It is empty. But God, clinging to you, trusting your word, trusting your heart, Lord, is what we must do in every moment of crisis like that. Help us to trust you. Help us to know you and know your word so that we would stand up against the attacks of the enemy, that we would stand fast and resist the devil and honor you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.